Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. It's the holiday season. The holiday season. And whoop-dee-doo, crackly-crack. Crackly-crack? I mean, because we're Campfire Classics, so fire crackly-crack. Oh, fire cracking. <laughs> See, I, not I, I like thought, crack. I thought you were encouraging people to try crack this holiday. Absolutely not. All Though right. I highly encourage rock candy. That's always fun. Mm, yeah, remember pop when you, rocks. Yeah, pop rocks. Yeah, like rocky candies. You can try that, but steer clear of the actual crack, please. Crack, crack is, is whack. whack, yo. <laughs> I love that we both said that at the same time and didn't even know where we were going. <laughs> So hello, welcome back to uh, our little show here. Um, it is indeed the week if you celebrate. It is the week of Christmas. It is the end of Hanukkah, and it is the winter solstice. So yeah, coming up in coming up, I th- I think to maybe the day the before day we, this releases. I don't even know, but uh, it's I'm the week of calendars. all these things. So uh, happy holidays to all. Um, the and days are going to start getting longer again. That's yeah. beautiful. And if you don't celebrate any of those holidays, if you just, if you're, if you're not a religious person and you don't believe in solstices, <laughs> then, uh, congratulations. You're entering the final week of 2020. Fuck. Yes, you are. If you're listening to this, we got through 2020 y'all. I mean, almost. <laughs> I'm going to knock on wood. It's, it's getting there. Cause, uh, I'm not going to test 2020. Um, but yeah, we're 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 rounding it out here. So, uh, my little sister is driving back from Chicago as we speak. Um, she's been distancing, and I mean, she's her and her partner have been literally working from home and doing nothing. So, uh, she's driving home, and so she gets to be here for Christmas, and then her partner will be with us the day after Christmas. Um, oh, he he's is working. Coming, coming in right after. Yeah, he's coming the twenty sixth. Cool. So. But yeah, we're excited to be home for the holidays in a way. Um, I hope you guys are, whoever, wherever you're listening from, that you are safe and you are healthy and you are uh, have plans to be with family or to Zoom with family or to, you know, ignore your family if you don't like them. <laughs> yeah. I support all choices. And I mean. if you don't have anyone that you're going to be spending this time with and want people to spend this time with, reach out to us on social media and say hi. Yeah. We'd we'd love to have a chat online or or otherwise, or just go ahead and listen to some more episodes of Campfire Classics. Yeah, we're pretty welcoming. <laughs> that's a that's a good way for us to try to keep you company. Yeah, I mean, sit around like build a fire, preferably not in your house, like unless you have a fireplace. Unless you have a fireplace. Um. Or light a candle and you can enjoy. Um, I So 2020 is ending and we were talking about this yesterday. I don't know. Days have no meaning. But um, we had some, I think everyone like, yes, 2020 has blown completely As in a general. Whole, has not been good. Has not been good. But there have been, I think in everyone's life when I've talked to them um, and Ken and I here, like there have been amazing things that have come out of 2020 and in like... The fact that we have not been able to live our lives as normal. I think a lot of us have discovered other things that we love to do, um, ways to cope, ways to self 
heal self-medicate um, in sometimes um but like this podcast wouldn't uh exist if it weren't for 2020 i don't yeah. think um and uh Trump's on his way out the fucking door. Um, so we had, I don't know if that election, like, honestly, without, like, the like the build up to that election, I don't know if there would have been as much fire behind the, the election process because people had nothing else to focus on. So, yes, it was the longest election of all time, including it was a week long before they announced it, pretty much. But, well, well and we're still waiting. <laughs> we're still waiting on that concession speech. Yeah. Which is not going to happen, y'all. You know they're going to have to drag his ass out of there, and I'm going to watch, and it's going to be funny. <laughs> There's going to be a photographer who wins a damn Pulitzer for catching that picture. Like the Secret Service escorting him out. Oh, it's going to be so good. See, things to look forward to in 2021. Um yeah, I mean... All of the jokes about hindsight being 2020, we have that to look forward to. God, yes. <laughs> Anytime anything's bad in your life, hindsight 2020 means something totally different now to everyone. So what I would love to hear from you, uh, drop us a line either at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or at any of the Campfire Classics social media uh, accounts you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or on our website, campfireclassicspodcast.com. I would love to hear from you. What is one good or even better, what is one great thing that happened for you in 2020? I know the overwhelming feeling may not be of greatness, but what is one great, powerful, wonderful moment that came out of this year? Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone, I mean, what is the uh, the story we read last week? Um, if you haven't heard it yet, um, it's all about appreciating what you have while you have it because you don't know what's next. So, yeah, I think we all had something fabulous happen, at least at least one little thing. So, um, yeah, reach out. We'd love to hear that. That'd be a nice way to end out the year. Um, and we can share those if you want them shareable. We'll we'll give you a little shout out on the on the website and we'll read them out. Um We'll read them out on our last episode of uh, 2020, which will be our next one. Which will be one week from today. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's happening. It's happening. It's the holiday season. Whoop-de-doo and crack-de-crack. Crackety-crack. <laughs> oh, my God. So many Christmas carols. Um. So this is a time of year that is filled with traditions for... um many people uh and this um this is my ramping up into my fun facts section oh well done Ooh, <laughs> I, I was like is he is he segueing is I he am. segueing that's, that's, beautifully that was my that was my glorious segue when does so, this one come out the 22nd yes oh <laughs> then i better say this before you do that okay it's my parents' anniversary. Oh. Happy anniversary, Brian and Jan. Happy anniversary. <laughs> yep. I was like, I was like, wait, is it actually the day we drop? So I'm gonna throw that in. Happy anniversary. Um and five days later, happy birthday to my father. Yay. It's it's a week of celebrations. So speaking of traditions and whatnot, it's a week of tradition and celebration in the Lawler household because my parents decided to smash all their fun things into, into one week. one week around Christmas. So, Good thing late December isn't stressful in this household. Yeah, right? We got their anniversary, <laughs> Christmas, 
my dad's birthday. Oh, and the day before that, the 26th, is my grandpa's birthday. And yeah, he'll be 93 this year. Awesome. Like, good God. Wait, 94? Oh, my gosh. I've lost track. Lots of birthdays. Lots of birthdays. (laughs) Yep. Yep. It's going to be a busy week. So traditions. Let's hear about traditions. it. Traditions. So uh, these fun facts brought to you courtesy of the BBC website, oh. uh, com blog, and of course, Wikipedia. Well, damn. Jerome K. Jerome wrote in the introduction to his 1891 collection, Told After Supper. <clears throat> is this what I'm reading? No, this is not what <laughs> okay. you're reading. There must be something ghostly in the air of Christmas, something about the close, muggy atmosphere that draws up the ghosts like the dampness of the summer rains brings out the frogs and snails. Frogs. He continues, And not only do the ghosts themselves always walk on Christmas Eve, but live people always sit and talk about them on Christmas Eve. Whenever five or six English-speaking people meet around a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. Is this what they do in England on Christmas? <laughs> it's, just... it's a long-standing tradition, yeah. Um, cool. It, uh, it is a genial, festive season, and we love to muse upon graves and dead bodies and murders and blood. What the fuck? So in England, telling ghost stories is uh, a Christmas Eve tradition, well, a, I mean, a long-time-honored tradition. Christmas Carol is a ghost story. A lot of people think that the tradition started with Christmas Carol and with Charles Dickens, but it actually goes back way further than that. We're talking like Neolithic tribes, cavemen, um, and the pre-Roman pagans would tell stories about the gods and spirits of death and resurrection during this time of year as part of the winter solstice um, celebration. Oh, yeah. Part of the, like, beat back the darkness sort of thing. Uh-huh. They'd, they'd start telling stories about these supernatural things dealing with light and dark and with with uh, life and death. Cool. Um And that has continued through the centuries for several years, starting in 1971 and then rebooted in 2005. The BBC ran its A Ghost Story for Christmas series, where it adapted a classic ghost story by a British author into a new feature film each year at Christmas. Wow. Okay. And by far... The most popular author of these Christmas time ghost stories is Campfire Classics' favorite author, or a favorite author of Campfire Classics, none other than M.R. James. Yay! The book my mom found in our basement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his stories, uh, very popular around Christmas, were not necessarily Christmas themed. That wasn't the point of yeah. these Christmas Eve ghost stories. Okay. It was just to tell ghost stories around Christmas. Um, I lo- how did I not know this? Like living in England, maybe this is just something that like went over my head. Something that you just missed. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, cool. so his his stories were, were have. Uh, if you look at the the series of the the twenty or so uh, episodes, the yeah. twenty or so years that this thing ran, yeah. Um, over half of them are M.R. James short stories. Oh my god! So that's so. 
That's weird because my mom was like, they've been cleaning out the basement since quarantine started, really, because they needed to do it and they finally have time. And my mom found this and we read out of it. What, what episode was that? It was early. It was early on. It was the story Wailing Well. Yeah. And like, it literally is called M.R. James Ghost Stories. And my mom just found that she has no idea where it came from or whose book it was. It was just destined to come yeah. into our possession, apparently. And now this. Now this. That's awesome. Um, so, uh, M.R. James often talked about uh, what it took to write a good ghost story. And he never called these things rules, but his wisdom has been sort of distilled into 10 tips for writing a ghost story. <laughs> Here you go, guys. Listen up. Number one. This is our TED Talk. This is our <laughs> TED Talk on how to write a good ghost story. Um, our, our TED Talk of wisdom filtered from M.R. James. Uh, number one, make the setting contemporary. What he said was, the setting should be fairly familiar to the majority of the characters and their talk, such as you may meet or hear any day. A ghost story of which the scene is laid in the 12th or 13th century may succeed in being romantic or poetical. It will never put the reader into the position of saying to himself, if I'm not very careful, something of this kind could happen to me. So a good ghost story should be set in some place that the reader will feel familiar. Yeah. I know that he meant romantic as in like 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 romantic, romantic writing. Romantic gothic. But yeah. I was I immediately went to like a sexy ghost story. <laughs> so so Patrick Swayze. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> oh my love. Let's make some pottery. <laughs> so that's that's tip number one. Make okay. it contemporary. Tip number two is but not too contemporary. <laughs> okay. Uh, what he said is, for a ghost story, a slight haze of distance is desirable. So you're not, like, looking behind you the whole I time. I think part of it is also, if it is too immediate, if it's, like... If it if takes you, place in your house. Yeah, <laughs> if, if it takes place in your house today, then you can look at it and go, yeah, but that didn't happen today. Um, he says the uh, ideal ways to open a ghost story are things like... A few years ago, or not long before the war. Not long before the Trump presidency. Just before quarantine. Ooh, yeah. Right? That's Love it. Okay. Uh, number three, slowly develop the supernatural elements. Okay. Let us be introduced to the actors in a placid way. Let us see them going about their ordinary business, undisturbed by forebodings, pleased by their surroundings, and into this calm environment, let the ominous thing put out its head, unobtrusively at first, and then more insistently until it holds the stage. I mean, that's pretty accurate in every scary movie I've ever seen, and definitely yep. the ghost stories we have read. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, be subtle is number four. Okay. Bram Stoker's Dracula is a book with very good ideas in it, but to be vulgar, the butter is spread far too thick. <laughs> Excess is the fault here. Oh, damn. <laughs> I mean. M.R. James calling out Bram Stoker. Oh, well, damn. He's like, mm-mm, that was a little, little heavy-handed there, yep. bra. <laughs> Uh, tip number five, but not too subtle. I was going to say, you're going to have to 
put some something in there. At the same time, don't let us be mild and drab. Malevolence and terror, the glare of evil faces, the stony grin of unearthly malice pursuing forms in darkness, and long-drawn distant screams are all in place, and so is a modicum of blood shed with deliberation and carefully husbanded. So make it subtle, but there's got to be some scary shit in there. It's got to be. Yeah, you're going to have to eventually describe something weird or gross. Yeah. Uh, Number six, maintain an air of gothic ambivalence. Okay. The greatest successes have been scored by the authors who, when the climax is reached, allow us to be just a little in the dark as to the working of their machinery. We do not want to see the bones of their theory about the supernatural. Yeah. So there's still, even when we see the monster, we can't see the whole monster. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and you don't get a full explanation of what this is about. Yeah. Yeah. But don't break the spell. It is not amiss sometimes to leave a loophole for a natural explanation. Is that seven? This is seven, okay. yeah. But I would say let the loophole be so narrow is to not be quite practicable. So you should be able to come up with maybe a rational scientific reason that the haunting or whatever had happened, but it can't be so obvious that you can disregard the story. Okay. Okay. Uh, Eight, be scary. (laughs) A ghost should be malevolent or odious. Amiable and helpful... Oh, I love me a friendly ghost. Okay, go ahead. Amiable and helpful apparitions are all very well in fairy tales or in local legends, but I have no use for them in a fictitious ghost story. that's not a ghost story. It's not a ghost story. It's a ghost... It's a story of a ghost, but it's not a ghost story. But it's not a ghost story. Yeah, Yeah. so Casper the Friendly Ghost, sorry. Is a very sweet idea. Uh, Number nine, haunted objects are good plot triggers. Hell yeah, they are. Fucking dolls and shit. Oh, man. (laughs) Uh, Many commonplace objects may be made the vehicles of retribution and where retribution is not called for of malice. So, yeah. yeah. A haunted object of some kind. Haunted toys, y'all. Like, you got to be careful when you're shopping at Goodwill. (laughs) And uh, number 10, write it well. Yeah. (laughs) These stories are meant to please and amuse us. If they do so, well. But if not, let us relegate them to the top shelf and say no more about it. So you follow those first nine rules, great. But if you don't write it well, it's it's not a good ghost story. Yeah, yeah. No, I love Um, that. All right. So that's our our Mr. James TED Talk. So now go write a ghost story. So I um as I was as I was taking these notes, I thought back through it, and and I was thinking. A really good example of a story that hits all 10 of those is the the horror film Cabin in the Woods. I was literally thinking of Cabin in the Woods when you were like, set up that there's something off, but don't let like don't let it affect the characters for a very long time. So and going through it, it is contemporary, number one, but it's not super contemporary. You don't know exactly when it takes place. Or where. It's It's a college generally contemporary. Yeah. Um it slowly develops the supernatural elements. It is 
subtle. Yeah. But not super subtle. Yeah. There's a lot of blood and gore and guts. Eventually. Eventually. But not, at, not at first. Yeah. Um, it n- never breaks the spell. Nope. Uh, it's scary. Haunted objects. So many. So many of <laughs> Elevators them. Elevators full. Uh, if you haven't seen Cabin in the Woods, I think we've talked about this before. Go watch it. It is seriously one of my favorite horror films and comedy films and just like suspense. I mean, it, it really does cover so many genres, yeah. but it is inherently a horror film. But yeah, I mean, Joss Whedon killed it. <laughs> he, he did Literally a good job in that Ooh. one. Uh, sorry, puns. They just happen sometimes. Sometimes they do. Puns just happen. Um, but, but so, yes. yeah. So thinking yeah. over Cabin in the Woods, I was going, oh, yeah, it hits that. It hits that. It mm-hmm. hits that. It hits that. Great. So I'll be really curious when when we finish reading this story, if we can go back and go, OK, Mr. James, did you do did you hit your 10 points? <laughs> I hope so. If not, we'll be sad. Uh, so today you you are going to be reading M.R. James. Woo! It is uh, the story that was adapted into BBC's 1973 episode of A Ghost Story for Christmas, Lost Hearts. Lost Hearts. Okay. That's creepy. All right. So let's, uh, let's start the campfire. It's the holiday campfire. Be over here roasting my marshmallows. Is that a euphemism? That's not a euphemism. <laughs> I mean, that will help you stay warm. That would be uh, that would be roasting my chestnuts. <laughs> roasting my pecan pie. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. That gives a whole new meaning. Anyway, I'm gonna read this story now. <clears throat> Sorry, I had coffee um, not so long ago, and it's very creamy. And so (laughs) if I get phlegm balls, um, Ken will probably edit most of them out. As much as I can. (laughs) I'm definitely not editing out the phrase phlegm balls, though. (laughs) Phlegm balls roasting on an open fire. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm going to have to stretch out this campfire sound. (laughs) So long. All right, here we go. Lost Hearts by M.R. James. It was, as far as I can ascertain, in September of the year 1811 that I post-chaise post-chaise drew up before the door. Post-chaise? Post-chaise? C-H-A-I-S-E. A horse-drawn carriage used for transporting passengers or mail, especially in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Well, look at that. There it is. We already also, looked up our first word. Uh, what is it? September of 1811? 1811. There we go. It's That is contemporary to when he's writing, yeah. but not super contemporary. Yeah. When was this one written? Do you have that info? The collection of short stories that this comes from was published in 1895. Okay. Cool. All right. Sweet. Let's try this all over again. Lost Hearts by M.R. James. It was, as far as I can ascertain, in September of the year 1811 that a postchaise drew up before the door at Aswery Hall in the heart of Lincolnshire. The little boy, who was the only passenger in the chaise, chaise. It depends on if you're French or English. Yeah. I'm definitely not French. We all know that. (laughs) 
The little boy, who was the only passenger in the chaise and who jumped out as soon as it had stopped, looked about him with the keenest curiosity during the short interval that elapsed between the ringing of the bell and the opening of the hall door. He saw a tall, square, red brick house built in the reign of Anne. A stone-pillared porch that had been added in the pure classical style of 1790. The windows of the house were many, tall and narrow, with small panes and thick white woodwork. A pediment pierced with a round window crowned the front. There were wings to the right and left, connected by curious glazed galleries, supported by colon... colonnades? 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 Colonnades. It's, uh, it's that. It's right on the break. Um, uh, here. Um, I mean, supported yes. by columns. A row of columns yeah. supporting a roof and entablature or arcade. A row of columns supporting it's a, row of a roof. Columns. Great. Yeah. With the central block. These wings plainly contained the stables and offices of the house. Each was surmounted by an ornamental cup, cup, cupola with a gilded vein. What's a cupola? I know I've like heard a definition of it before, but all I can think of is Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> Uh, a cupola is in architecture because it has a different meaning uh, in in uh, linguistics. Okay. But in architecture, it is a relatively small dome, often resembling a cup. Oh, <laughs> how clever of the British! <laughs> how clever they be! So um. basically, this is he's describing a really fancy kind of old probably haunted as hell house yeah yeah it's probably haunted as hell i mean columns and towers and domes oh my and wings and you know creepy windows and cool an evening light shone on the building making the window panes glow like so many fires away from the hall in front stretched a flat park studded with oaks and fringed with firs which stood out against the sky the clock in the church tower, buried in trees on the edge of the park, only its golden weather cock catching the light. <laughs> I hate when the church cock catches the light. <laughs> when the golden cock catches light. <laughs> the, ch- the, ch- the golden church cock catches light. I think that was a problem with the Vatican recently. <laughs> oh! Mm. Damn! <laughs> What, what's Stephen Colbert do? Dun, 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 dun. Catholic burn. <laughs> Happy holidays. I think that would be uh, papal burn. Papal burn. I or, like that. Oh, papal cut. Oh, oh, papal cut. TM, Colbert writers, contact us if you'd like to use us. <laughs> The clock in the church tower, buried in trees on the edge of the park, only its golden weathercock catching the light, was striking six, and the sound came gently beating down the wind. It was altogether a pleasant impression, though tinged with a sort of melancholy appropriate to an evening in early autumn, that was conveyed in the mind of the boy who was standing in the porch, waiting for the door to open to him. Okay, so... Just to recap, yep. Kid gets off a carriage in front of a 
in front Crazy of a house. cool kind of imposing, slightly older house at six o'clock the church bells are as ringing. the church bell starts ringing. And the whole thing is really pretty, but and a little autumn. bit, but a little bit melancholy, which is appropriate for mid-September. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Cool. The post-chaise had brought him from Warwickshire, where some six months before he had been left an orphan. Now, owing to the generous offer of his elderly cousin, Mr. Abney, he had come to live in Aswar Beach. Aswar Beach? <laughs> I'm not familiar with that part of England. Aswar Beach? Is that As- what it was? Aswar Beach. Aswar um, Beach. Okay. Aswarby. A-S-W-A-R-B-Y. The offer was unexpected because all who knew anything about Mr. Abney looked upon him as a somewhat astute recluse into whose steady-going household the advent of a small boy would import a new and, it seemed, incredulous element. All right. <laughs> that is a sentence. Okay, so basically the secret garden... <laughs> <laughs> like the 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 creepy like uncle that reclusive old uncle in a big fancy house big ass house and everyone's like wait he's you want to adopt a, a child speaking of orphans there's another story about an orphan um the truth is that very little was known of mr abney's pursuits or temper the professor of greek at cambridge had been heard to say that no one knew more of the religious beliefs of the later pagans than did the owner of Aswerby. Certainly, his library contained all of the available books bearing on the mysteries, the Orphic poems, the worship of Mithras, and the Neoplatonists. Okay. Okay, so his uncle's a, like, freaky pagan, like, doing some some cuckoo (laughs) walk-walk. Cuckoo walk-walk? I don't know. (laughs) Would would that be cooking a cuckoo bird in two walk. walks? I don't. Know. The cuckoo walk walk. He's doing some woo woo in the or forest. Is that, or is that a new dance move? I think it's the a new dance walk move. Walk. Do the cuckoo walk walk. Do the cuckoo walk walk. <laughs> it's a pagan dance. All right. Um, oh, please no. submit your videos of what you think the cuckoo walk walk looks like. I'll post my own. <laughs> I already have an idea. All right. So this could paganism. be our first TikTok challenge. <laughs> yeah. Put it on TikTok and tag Campfire Classics um, or hashtag hashtag Campfire Classics. In the marble paved hall stood a fine group of Mithras slaying a bull, which had been imported from the Levant at great expense by the owner. He had contributed a description of it to the Gentleman's Magazine and had written a remarkable series of articles in the Critical Museum on the superstitions of the Romans of the Lower Empire. He was looked upon, in fine, as a man wrapped up in his books, and it was a matter of great surprise among his neighbors that he should ever have heard of his orphan cousin, Stephen Elliot, much more that he should have volunteered to make him an intimate of Asbury Hall. Okay, so he's Belle from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> there goes the professor with his books like always. <laughs> yes, but also he's Beast from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, he's both. He's like a combination. <laughs> he is their son. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. 
He is the child of Beauty and the Beast, especially if he I mean, comes out time period, especially if he comes out to greet young Stephen Elliott and is uncharacteristically hairy. <laughs> if he's if he's a very furry man. <laughs> Fantastic. So we've now. OK, now I have a visual and it's a little upsetting. All right. He's Belle with a beard. Belle with a beard. <laughs> oh. Whatever may have been expected by his neighbors, it is certain that Mr. Abney, the tall, the thin, the austere, seemed inclined to give his young cousin a kindly reception. The moment the front door was opened, he darted out of his study, rubbing his hands with delight. "'How are you, my boy? How are you? How old are you?' said he. "'That is, you are not much too tired, I hope, from your journey to eat your supper.' No, thank you, sir, said Master Elliot. I am pretty well. <laughs> That's a good lad, said Mr. Abney. And, and how old are you, my boy? It seemed a little odd that he should have asked the question twice in the first two minutes of their acquaintance. Fair point. That is, yeah, wouldn't he know how old he was? Not necessarily. I mean, yeah, I mean, if they're, if if they're, they're like kind of estranged relatives. Cousins who don't really know each other that well. That's true. I'm 12 years old next birthday, sir, said Stephen. So you're so 11. You're 11. <laughs> Do you remember when you used to, when we were kids, we always said 11 and a half. Yep. Because we were so excited to get older. And now I'm like, I I'm 32. How old are you? I'm <laughs> in my 30s. I'm in my 30s. Anyway, I'm 12 years old next birthday, sir, said Stephen. And when is your birthday, my dear boy? 11th of September, eh? Ooh, weird. That's, well, that's very well. Nearly a year hence, isn't it? I uh, like, ha ha, I like to get these things down in my book. Sure it's 12? Certain? Yes, quite sure, sir. Wait. Wait. I'm 12 next birthday, and when's your birthday? 360 days from now. So you're 11, and you've been 11 for like five days. Yeah, and why? how does he know his birthday is the 7th, September 11th? <laughs> Also, kooky, creepy. Creepy. Speaking of, um, uh, sure, it's 12. Sir, why is he so obsessed with how old he is? This is creeping me out. I think there's going to be a pagan sacrifice involved. I think involved. it's supposed to creep you yeah, out. I know. Yes, quite, sir. Well, well, take him to Mrs. Bunch's room, Parks, and let him have his tea, supper, uh, whatever it is. Yes, sir, answered the staid Mr. Parks and conducted Stephen to the lower regions. The lower regions. <laughs> Upsetting. Mrs. Bunch was the most comfortable and human person whom Stephen had as yet met at Aswerby. So she's a very warm, uh, not strange human being. Well, and most human is just a very strange, strange way, way to, to describe it. someone. Yeah. Yeah. But if Uncle what's his name? Abney, cousin yeah. Abney, is in fact the offspring of Bell and Beast, then he wouldn't then he be wouldn't very, very human. human. Yeah. So here we go. Our theory continues. She made him completely at home. 
They were great friends in a quarter of an hour, and great friends they remained. Mrs. Bunch had been born in the neighborhood some 55 years before the date of Stephen's arrival, and her residence at the hall was of 20 years standing. Consequently, if anyone knew the ins and outs of the house and the district, Mrs. Bunch knew them, and she was by no means disinclined to communicate her information. Certainly, there were plenty of things about the hall and the hall gardens which Stephen, who was of an adventurous and inquiring turn, was anxious to have explained to him. Who built the temple at the end of the Laurel Walk? Who was the old man whose picture hung on the staircase sitting at the table with a skull under his hand? Oh, shit. What the crap? Does <laughs> Hamlet live in this house? What's going Okay. <laughs> These and many similar points were cleared up by the resources of Mrs. Bunch's powerful intellect. There were others, however, of which the explanations furnished were less satisfactory. Ooh. Yeah, well, what satisfactory answer can you get to? Who's that guy with the, the skull? skull under his head. One November evening, okay, so two months later. One November evening, Stephen was sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room reflecting on his surroundings. Is Mr. Abney a good man and will he go to heaven? He suddenly asked with the particular confidence which children possess in their ability of their elders to settle these questions. The decision which is believed to be reserved for other tribunals. Good? "'Bless the child,' said Mrs. Bunch. "'Master's as kind a soul as ever I see. "'Didn't I never tell you of the little boy "'as he took in out of the street? "'As you may say, this seven years back, "'and the little girl two years after I first come here?' "'No, do tell me about them, Mrs. Bunch. "'Now, this minute. "'Also, where are these children now?' "'That's what I want to know. <laughs> yep. "'Well,' said Mrs. Bunch, "'the little girl I don't seem to recollect so much about. "'I know Master brought her back with him from his walk one day. "'You <laughs> uh, uh, and give orders to Mrs. Ellis, as was housekeeper then, "'as she should be took every care with, "'and the poor child hadn't no one belonging to her. "'She told me so on her own self.' And here she lived with us a matter of three weeks, it might be, and then whether she was some think of a gypsy in her blood or what not, but one morning she out of her bed afore any of us had opened an eye, and neither track nor trace of her have I set on eyes since. Uh-uh. 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 Nope. His Negatory. uncle is collecting children in the forest, and then they just up and disappear. The kids are down in the basement powering the colonnades. That's probably what's going on. He's got like a, 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 a Temple of Doom thing going down in the basement. Underneath the golden kids. cock. <laughs> Papal slam. All right. No, papal cut. Papal cut, sorry. Like, like paper cut. But I know cut. what it is. <laughs> yeah, but jokes are funnier if you explain them. <laughs> I have always... Always been a proponent of that. All right. Master was forever put about and had all the pawns dragged, but it's my belief that she was had away by them gypsies. 
for there was singing round the house for as much as an hour the night she went and parks he declared as he heard them a-calling in the woods all that afternoon dear dear a hood child she was so silent in her ways and all but i was wonderful taken up with her so domesticated she was surprising and what about the little boy said stephen Ah, oh, that poor boy, sighed Mrs. Bunch. He were a foreigner, Giovanni called hisself, and he come a-tweakin' his urdy-gurdy round and about the drive one winter day, and master at him in that minute, and that's all about where he came from, and how old he was, and how he made his way, and where was his relatives, and all that kind of art could wish. But it went the same way with him. They're an unruly lot, them foreign nations, I do suppose, and he was off one fine morning just the same as the girl. Why, he went and what he done with our question for as much as a year after that, for he never took his hurdy-gurdy, and there it lays on the shelf. Oh, shit. And he left his hurdy-gurdy? Nah, that kid is dead. Haunted object? Haunted as shit. That kid's going to, you know, Stephen's going to pick up the hurdy gurdy and start playing and it's going to really release the demons into the house or something. The remainder of the evening was spent by Stephen in miscellaneous cross-examination of Mrs. Bunch and in efforts to extract a tune from the hurdy gurdy. He did. He picked up the hurdy gurdy and played it. Of course he did. <laughs> in fairness, that's exactly what I would do. <laughs> it's true. That night, he had a curious dream. Uh-oh, another creepy dream in a creepy old house. At the end of the passage at the top of the house in which his bedroom was situated, there was an old disused bathroom. It was kept locked, but the upper half of the door was glazed, and since the muslin curtains which used to hang there had long been gone, you could look in and see the lead-lined bath affixed to the wall on the right-hand side with its head toward the window. On the night of which I am speaking, Stephen Elliot found himself, as he thought, looking through the glazed door. The moon was shining through the window, and he was gazing at a figure which lay in the bath. His description of what he saw reminds me of what I once beheld myself in the famous vaults of St. Mission's Church in Dublin which possesses the horrid property of preserving corpses from decay for centuries. A figure expressively thin and pathetic of a dusty leaden color enveloped in a shroud-like garment, the thin lips crooked into a faint and dreadful smile, the hands pressed tightly over the region of the heart. As he looked upon it, a distant, almost inaudible moan seemed to issue from its lips, and the arms began to stir. The terror of the sight forced Stephen backwards, and he awoke to the fact that he was indeed standing on the cold-boarded floor of the passage in the full light of the moon. With a courage which I do not think can be common among boys of his age, he went to the door of the bathroom to ascertain if the figure of his dreams were really there. It was not, and he went back to bed. So he I had a been dream. Able to go back to bed. No, fuck no. Like all these people that like go back to bed, like the room in the tower. Like hell no. Sleep on the damn couch or get to fuck out of Dodge. Like, no, like honestly, when there have been times when I have woken up after a dream like that and 
I have the thought, I could go back to bed now. Or I could go down to the kitchen, make myself a cup of coffee, and start today early. Yeah. Because <laughs> fuck it. I'm not going back to sleep until tomorrow night. Yeah. Yeah. The like and he went back to bed. The fuck? <laughs> like, nope. First of all, he just sleepwalked. Like, and had the dream while he was sleeping and woke up where the dream ended. <laughs> like, that's creepy as yeah. fuck. No, I'm not playing that game. Nope, none I'm of out. that. Mrs. Bunch was much impressed next morning by his story and went so far as to replace the muslin curtain over the glazed door of the bathroom. Oh, now they're trying to hide something. Uh-oh. Mr. Abney, moreover, to whom he had confided his expertise at breakfast, was greatly interested and made notes of the matter in what he called his book. <laughs> oh, God. There's some shady shit going on in this house. The spring equinox was approaching. So, okay, because so now it's been... So that's like so April, March. March. So it's been another four months. Okay, so he's been there six months. Okay. They're which waiting until he turns 12. Which means he outlasted both the other kids. That's true. I mean, he has family. And maybe he's not old enough yet. He might not be old enough. I think I think they got to be 12. The spring equinox was approaching, as Mr. Abney frequently reminded his cousin, adding that this has always been considered by the ancients to be a critical time for the young, that Stephen would do well to take care of himself and to shut his bedroom window at night, and that Sensorinus had some valuable remarks on the subject. Two incidents that occurred about this time made an impression on Stephen's mind. The first was after an unusually uneasy and oppressed night that he had passed, though he could not recall any particular dream that he had had. The following evening, Mrs. Bunch had occupied herself in mending his nightgown. "'Gracious me, Master Stephen,' she broke forth rather irritably. "'How do you manage to tear your nightdress all to flinders this way? "'Look here, sir, what trouble do you have to poor servants "'that you have to don and mend for you?' "'There was indeed a most destructive and apparently wanton series "'of slits or scoring in the garment, "'which would undoubtedly require a skillful needle to make good. "'They were confined to the left side of the chest.' Long, parallel slits of six inches in length, some of them not quite piercing the texture of the linen. Stephen could only express his entire ignorance of their origin. He was sure they were not there the night before. But, he said, Mrs. Bunch, they are just the same as the scratches on the outside of my bedroom door. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Why are there scratches on the outside of his bedroom door? That's something you point out. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Outside of my bedroom door, and I'm sure I never had anything to do with making them. Mrs. Bunch gazed upon him open mouth, then snatched up a candle, departed hastily from the room, and was heard making her way up the stairs. In a few minutes, she came down. Well, she said, Master Stephen, it's a funny thing to me how them marks and scratches came a come there. Too high up for any cat a dog to have made him, much less a rat. For all the world, like a Chinaman's fingernails, as my uncle in the tea trade used to tell us when we was girls together. I wouldn't say nothing to the master, not if I was you, Master Stephen, my dear, and just turn the key on the door when you go to bed. 
So Mrs. Bunch is racist, and now she's saying, just lock your door at night, and whatever's doing that will stop. Also, did she just say she thinks there's someone in the house at night, like, scratching on the doors? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Also, if the marks on the door line up with the marks on the nightgown, and you're saying just lock the door to keep it out, that means you're acknowledging that something snuck into his bedroom one night (laughs) and slashed... Scratched shit out of his nightgown. Slashed the nightgown right over his heart on the left side of his chest. Yeah, that's... That's, I would maybe station a servant out front of the door or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting real Temple of Doom vibes. I'm not liking this at all. <laughs> I always do, Mrs. Bunch, as soon as I've said my prayers. Okay, so now he's already locking the door. Even creepier. Oh, that's a good child. Always say your prayers, and then no one can't hurt you. Herewith, Mrs. Bunch addressed herself to mending the injured nightgown with intervals of meditation until bedtime. There, This was on Friday night in March, 1812. So we were right, March. <laughs> 1812. <laughs> who, as a rule, kept himself rather to himself in his own pantry. He did not see that Stephen was there. He was, moreover, flustered and less slow of speech than was his wont. "'Master may get his own wine, if he likes, on an evening,' was his first remark. "'Either I do it in the daytime, or not at all, Mrs. Bunch.' I don't know what it may be, very like it's rats or the wind got into the cellars, but I'm not so young as I was, and I can't go through it as I have done. Okay, so now this is a very Hill House vibe. He will not stay after dark. He will not go in the cellar after dark. Well, that's just good common sense. Well, yes, but that's very Hill House. Like, the the, the caretakers, they don't stay after dark. <laughs> well, Mr. Fox... You know it is a surprise in place for the rats, is the hall. I am not denying that, Mrs. Bunch, and to be sure, many a time I've heard the tale from the men in the shipyards about the rat that could speak. Splinter? <laughs> See, is I immediately a, went to American Tale. I immediately went to American Tale. I never laid no confidence in that before, but tonight, if I demeaned myself to lay my ear to the door of the further bin, I could pretty much have heard what they were saying. Oh there, Mr. Parks, I've no patience with your fancies. Rats talking in the wine cellar, indeed. Well, Mrs. Bunch, I've no wish to argue with you. All I say is, if you choose to go to the far bin and lay your ear to the door, you may prove my words this minute. What nonsense do you talk, Mr. Parks? Not fit for children to listen to. Why, you'll be frightening Master Stephen there out of his wits. What? Master Stephen? said Parks, awakening to the consciousness of the boy's presence. Master Stephen knows well enough when I'm playing a joke with you, Mrs. Bunch. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) he just covered his ass real fast. (laughs) Uh, no, he, he knows I was just kidding. I knew was, he was there the whole time. <laughs> I, uh, uh, yes. 
In fact, Master Stephen knew much too well to suppose that Mr. Parks had, in the first instance, intended a joke. He was interested, not altogether pleasantly, in the situation, but all his questions were unsuccessful in inducing the butler to give him any more detailed account of his experience in the wine cellar. We have now arrived at March 24th, 1812. It was a day of curious experiences for Stephen, a windy, noisy day which filled the house and the gardens with a restless impression. As Stephen stood by the fence of the grounds and looked out into the park, he felt as if an endless procession of unseen people were sweeping past him on the wind, borne on resistlessly and aimlessly, vainly striving to stop themselves, to catch at something that might arrest their flight and bring them once again into contact with the living world of which they had formed a part. After luncheon that day, Mr. Abney said, Stephen, my boy, do you think you could manage to come to me tonight as late as 11 o'clock in my study? I wish to show you something connected with your future life, which is most important that you should know. You are not to mention this matter to Mrs. Bunch, nor anyone else in the house, and you had better go to your room at the usual time. Okay. No. 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 When someone says you can't tell anyone and they want you to come to their office like late at night in like a creepy fucking way. I no, I don't like it. Kids, if you're listening and you <laughs> really sh- shouldn't be, yeah. but kids <laughs> If you're listening and at any point an adult says, hey, (laughs) come up to my room tonight at 11 and don't tell anyone else. It'll be our little secret. That's a good time for you to run away and tell everyone else. Um, No, absolutely Uh -uh. not. That's how Harvey Weinstein happened, man. (laughs) Let's be real. Here was a new excitement added to life. Stephen eagerly grasped at the opportunity of sitting up till 11 o'clock. He looked at the library door on his way upstairs that evening and saw a brazier. No, that can't be right. A brazier? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, that's not how you spell brazier. And also, why is there a bra hanging on the library door? (laughs) That's like a sock on the door handle. That's why his uncle's busy till then. He's got a date. (laughs) What's a brazier like a little um heating unit thing um sort of like a torch except it's meant to also give heat okay or a pre-electricity space heater oh nice okay he looked at the library door on his way upstairs that evening and saw a brazier which he had often noticed in the corner of the room moved out before the fire an old silver gilt cup stood on the table filled with red wine and some written sheets of paper lay near it. Mr. Abney was sprinkling some incense on the brazier from a round silver box as Stephen passed, but did not seem to notice his step. The wind had fallen and there was a still night and a full moon. At about 10 o'clock, Stephen was standing at the open window of his bedroom, looking out over the country. Still as the night was, the mysterious population of the distant moonlit woods had not yet lulled to rest. From time to time, strange cries as of lost and despairing wanderers sounded from across the mere. They might be the notes of owls or water birds, yet they did not quite resemble either sound. Were not they coming nearer? 
Now they sounded from the nearer side of the water, and in a few moments they seemed to be floating about among the shrubberies. Then they ceased. But just as Stephen was thinking of shutting the window and resuming his reading of Robinson Crusoe, Respect. he caught sight of two figures standing on the graveled terrace that ran along the garden side of the hall. The figures of a boy and a girl, as it seemed. They stood side by side, looking up at the windows. Something in the form of the girl recalled irresistibly his dream of the figure in the bath. The boy inspired him with more acute fear. Whilst the girl stood still, half smiling, with her hands clasped over her heart, the boy, a thin shape with black hair and ragged clothing, raised his arms in the air with an appearance of menace and unappeasable hunger and longing. The moon shone upon him almost transparent hands, and Stephen saw that the nails were fearfully long and that the light shone through them. As he stood with his arms thus raised, he disclosed a terrifying spectacle. On the left side of his chest, there opened a black and gaping rent, and there fell upon Stephen's brain, rather than upon his ear, the impression of one of those hungry and desolate cries that he had heard surrounding over the woods of Aswerby all that evening. In another moment, this dreadful pair had moved swiftly and noiselessly over the dry gravel, and he saw them no more. Inexpressibly frightened as he was, he determined to take his candle and go down to Mr. Abney's study, for the hour appointed their meeting was near at hand. The study or library opened out of the front hall on one side, and Stephen, urged on by his terrors, did not take long in getting there. To effect an entrance was not so easy. It was not locked, he felt sure, for the key was on the outside of the door as usual. His repeated knocks produced no answer. Mr. Abney was engaged. He was speaking. What? Why did he try to cry out? And why was the cry choked in his throat? Had he too seen the mysterious children? But now everything was quiet, and the door yielded to Stephen's terrified and frantic pushing. On the table in Mr. Abney's study, certain papers were found which explained the situation to Stephen Elliot when he was of an age to understand them. The most important sentences were as follows. It was a belief very strongly and generally held by the ancients, of whose wisdom in these matters I have had such experience as induces me to place confidence in their assertions, that by enacting certain processes, which to us moderns have something of a barbaric complexion, a very remarkable enlightenment of the spiritual faculties in man may be attained. For example, by absorbing the personalities of a certain number of his fellow creatures, an individual may gain a complete ascendancy over those orders of spiritual beings which control the elemental forces of our universe. It is recorded by Simon Magus that he was able to fly in the air, to become invisible, or to assume any form he pleased by the agency of the soul of a boy whom, to use the libellous phrase employed by the author of the 
Clementine recognitions, he had murdered. Oh, fuck. Yeah, this is like like human sacrifice shit. So, yeah. To like... Uh, to gain superpowers. Need, yeah. Ew, 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 ew. This is, this is Lord Voldemort yeah. murdering people to create horcruxes. Yeah. This is, yeah, it's... I find it set down, moreover, with considerable detail in the writings of Hermes Trimengitus that similar happy results may be produced by the absorption of the hearts of not less than three human beings below the age of 21 years. To the testing of the truth of this receipt, I have devoted the greater part of the last 20 years, selecting as the corpora vila, Vaila? It's in Latin. Corpora Vaila? Ooh, that's fucked up. I bet. <laughs> what? It's fucked up? Corpora Vilia is the plural of corpus vil, uh, and it is a person or thing fit only to be the object of an experiment. Oh, gross. Oh, this is fucked up. Oh, my God. It is horrifying to me that Latin has... Has a phrase a, of a that. A term specifically for that. Thank you very much. I'm like, what? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to read the whole sentence again. To the testing of the truth of this receipt, I have devoted the greater part of the last 20 years, selecting as the Capora Vilia of my experiment such persons as could conveniently be removed without occasionally a sensible gap in society. Holy shit. It's the whole like prying on like people without relatives. Like yeah. without anyone yeah, who would miss finding, them. Finding people who this is won't a common be immediately thing. missed. Yeah. This is a common thing in like in storytelling honestly especially in like serial like killers. And, oh god. Ew. No. No. Ew. The first step I effected by the removal of one Phoebe Stanley, a girl of gypsy extraction, on March 24th, 1792. The second by the removal of a wandering Italian lad named Giovanni Paoli on the night of March 23rd, 1805. The final victim, to employ a word repugnant to the highest degree to my feelings, must be my cousin, Stephen Elliot, his day must be this, March 24th, 1812. The best means of effecting the required absorption is to remove the heart from the living subject, to reduce it to ashes, and to mingle them with about a pint of some red wine, preferably port. Well, at least there I agree. <laughs> If there's going to be some, like, creepy-ass ceremony where I have to drink something unsettling, I would prefer it be mixed with port. <laughs> the remains of the first two subjects, at least. Also, this is very, uh, like, James Bond or, like, uh, it, it's like the, 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 like, thing you don't do as the bad guy. Write everything down so that the person can read everything you're planning to do and get the fuck out of Dodge and destroy your plan. This is like the evil guy. This is the bad guy monologuing. This is the bad guy telling everyone exactly what he's going to do before he does it. Yeah. I'm going to continue. 
But that's what it makes me think of. Yep. It's like the bad guy being like, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> the remains of the first two subjects, at least. It will be well to conceal. A disused bathroom or wine cellar will be found convenient for such a purpose. Some annoyance may be experienced from the psychic portion of the subjects, which popular language dignifies with the name of ghosts. But the man of philosophic temperament to whom alone the experiment is appropriate will be little prone to attach importance to the feeble efforts of these beings to wreak their vengeance on him. Jesus, I contemplate with the liveliest satisfaction the enlarged and emancipated existence which the experiment, if successful, will confer on me, not only placing me beyond the reach of human justice, so-called, but eliminating to a great extent the prospect of death itself. Mr. Abney was found in his chair, his head thrown back, his face stamped with an expression of rage, fright, and mortal pain. In his left side was a terrible lacerated wound exposing the heart. There was no blood on his hands, and a long knife that lay on the table was perfectly clean. A savage wild cat might have inflicted the injuries. The window of the study was open, and it was the opinion of the coroner that Mr. Abney had met his death by the agency of some wild creature. But Stephen Elliott's study of the papers I have quoted led him to a very different conclusion. That's the end. Hell yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> oh, so I bet Stephen took the papers so like they, they weren't found. So he knew what he was planning to do. But the kids that he had killed came in and, and killed, killed him. him. Before he could kill so, the third so victim. So much for a minor annoyance. Holy shit. Oh. Uh, I'm all like, right. I'm like, I'm skeezed out. First of all, that's really good. He followed all his, his little, his So sh- shall we, shall we go through them? Yes. Okay. So make the setting contemporary, but not too contemporary. Yep. English countryside English in countryside, the 1800s. 1800s, but it was a few years ago yeah. at the time he wrote it. Cool. Uh, slowly develop the supernatural elements. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. At first, it. it's just, you know, a place. Uh, be subtle, but not too subtle. Yep. Like, at first, you're like, something weird's going on. And then it's like, why is there scratches on the he outside of his door? He yeah. didn't show everything, but he showed enough. Yep. Uh, uh, maintain an air of gothic ambivalence, but don't break the spell. Yep. So we didn't. We didn't see all of the inner workings of the mystery. We don't know how the magic worked. No, but, but when clearly we came, it worked. <laughs> but when we came to the end, it, like, yeah, it could have been a wild cat. Or it could be the creepy, heartless boy with long fingernails he saw from the window. <laughs> be scary. Oh, yes. Uh, Deeply upsetting. Objects make good plot triggers. Hurdy-gurdy. The hurdy-gurdy. <laughs> Um, wine cellar. Hurdy gurdy wine cellar. Uh, there was a knife. There were the scratches on yeah. the doors. Yeah. yeah. Um, write it well. And it's it was so well written I could barely read it. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was some really beautiful alliteration stuff in there. And like the I think the hardest part about this, like what we do when we read these out loud, mm-hmm. is I get sucked into the story and I forget to like 
read like a person. Like, <laughs> like I get like, oh god, and then like I lose my track of where I'm going right. because that yeah, yeah. one was so upsetting and so scientific at some at times. And I was like, what is happening? Yeah. Like, um, in a lot of ways, and not not upsetting. completely. That was super upsetting. In a lot of ways, um, Mr. James writing reminds me of uh, Doyle. Yes. There are, I feel like there are yeah. a lot of similarities yeah. between him and between the the Doyle the Holmes, stories that like, we've read, yeah. the Holmes and the 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 leather funnel. And yeah. Um, well, the leather funnel, the dreams. Yeah. When there are the when dreams. The dreams came up. I went, "Oh shit, if you haven't listened the leather funnel, uh I don't remember what episode that was. Um but we read a Doyle story that was not Sherlock Holmes. Um and it was all about this supernatural um leather funnel that you lay by your head at night and it like funnels your dreams and it was creepy as hell that was another one where a haunted object yes. is a good plot trigger and then so when this kid when steven started dreaming in this and the dream started to like come true i went oh my god it's the same idea so yes they do they remind me a lot of each other the leather funnel we read in episode 18 a comely wench oh yeah it's a comely wench <laughs> So if you want to check that out and compare it to this story, um, both are creepy in different ways. But, oh, my God, that was. Oh, can you imagine, like, finding that paperwork next to your dead uncle and be like, wow, he was going to kill me tonight <laughs> and drink my heart. Dodged a bullet there. <laughs> like, what the fuck? I hope we get some good therapy after that. Or I hope he inherited the house. I hope he got to, and yeah. I, I wouldn't even keep it. I would like sell the shit out of that house and take all the money and then move on with my life. Cause I don't think I'd want to live there anymore after I knew my uncle had murdered two children there and was like, you know, enacting paganistic rituals. I don't know. Like, there's, there's a part of me that might like want to, you know, call an old priest and a young priest. <laughs> Um, like exercise the place, but stay there and like keep Mr. Park and Mrs. Bush on. And uh, yeah, they were really nice because they seemed cool. They didn't know what was going on. They were clearly freaked out. Mr. Park thought it was a it. talking rat. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't know there was a dead kid in there talking. <laughs> God damn, ew! I wouldn't go to the cellar either. And I like wine. I'd be like, nope, nope. Wine's getting stored at room temperature now. <laughs> I ain't going down there. We're using the church cellar. Yeah. It's just down across the park. Under the golden cock. <laughs> wow. So that was not Christmassy at all, but that was a ghost story. That was a ghost story. That was, ew. <laughs> uh, the music that you heard during this episode, uh, the hurdy-gurdy music that you heard playing was courtesy of my brother, uh, Craig Kelberg, who is, uh, well, I've talked about him before. We've talked about him before on the podcast, and uh, that was Hurdy Gurdy Music recorded by him. So thanks a lot, Craig. Thanks, Craig. I do love that our story from like two weeks ago, The Christmas Tale, mm -hmm. which was so fucking crazy. So two episodes ago, if you haven't listened, I highly recommend. Oh, wait, was that last week? The Christmas Masquerade? Yeah. No, that was two, two weeks, weeks ago. ago. Last week was the fir tree. Was the fir tree. Um, yeah, so the Christmas masquerade. I love that that had also a creepy person in the woods, but that was a witch that could, like, multiply cats, and this was a child-murdering uh, 
Psychopath, yeah. And the fir tree was in the woods. This is this is the the week of the woods. Yeah, December seems to be our uh, we're we're doing lots of bizarre stories that take place in tiny towns slash in, woods. Yeah, yeah, out in creepy places. Creepy places with weird traditions. Well, traditions. Weird traditions. Traditions. They're creepy. Traditions. Sometimes they are creepy. <laughs> Superstitions. Superstitions. Yeah, superstitions is good. Very superstitious. My uncle's gonna kill me. And I will fall into the wine cellar. Okay, that got weird. Sorry. Thank you for listening to our Stevie Wonder fan cast. <laughs> Stevie Wonder, I hope you don't listen to that. <laughs> Stevie Wonder, if you're listening. And we know you are. <laughs> I Damn stole it. it from you. You took it from me. <laughs> you can continue. What do you want to say to Stevie Wonder? Thanks for being awesome, man. Yeah, he's pretty fucking great. <laughs> hey, I, I hope 2020 has been all right for you. I, hope, I mean, I bet he's been making some good music. Uh, so, yeah, Stevie Wonder um, and everyone else who's listening, uh, congratulations on making it almost all the way through 2020. So uh, we've got We've got one more episode left for you this year, and then we get to look back on it and laugh. Mwahaha! Until then, thank you. We love you. This has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. I'm going to drink your demon heart.